say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Pax Britannica. The Blazing World with Dr. Jonathan Healy. Today I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Jonathan Healy, Associate Professor of Social History at Oxford University's Kellogg College. His most recent work, The Blazing World, was published this year to critical and popular praise. I'm definitely one of those praising it, by the way. Uh, It's already one of my key texts. I use it in all my recent episodes. Uh, So Dr. Healy, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, Thank you for having me. It's uh, always nice to to talk to a a fellow enthusiast for um, 17th century history. It's really clear that you enjoyed writing The Blazing World um, because you can just tell you it comes through the pages. But other than just because, you know, you're an enthusiast of the 17th century, why did you choose to write this particular book? Uh, it's a great question. Um, and you are absolutely right. I, um, I I think this is, it's just an utterly fascinating period in um, in history and, you know, uh, uh, particularly obviously in, in English history. Um, and I've always been drawn to it because it's a period when lots and lots of stuff kind of goes on. There's, you know, obviously there's, um, you know, there's a civil war right in the middle of it. It's a, uh, uh, there's a revolutionary uh, a, a revolutionary moment in 1647 where it looks like a kind of social revolution is going to happen and then of course you've got the the only uh experiment so far in um, republican government in uh in english history um and then obviously the kind of really fascinating political uh um developments in the later 17th century which are a bit less well known things like the exclusion crisis um and uh the uh, the revolution of 1689 some to some eyes the the glorious revolution um and so that you know that political story is really fascinating and i and i really wanted to be able to tell that story in a way that was interesting and engaging and 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 had a bit of pace because obviously you know not all history books are uh are written with a sort of you know the, the the impetus to try and get the reader to turn the pages quite so quite so fast um, but i actually came at this from a slightly different angle which is um i i um uh, I, I trained as a social historian. I, I wrote my first book about the poor in 17th century um, England, specifically on, on Lancashire, actually. Um, and I was very, I was very much kind of 
in that tradition of sort of history from below, uh, history which looked at the lives of ordinary people and how those changed. Uh, and one of the things that drew me to the 17th century is, is that it's just a period where you can say so much about ordinary people. You know, we have so many, uh, you know, we have an absolute kind of cacophony of sources, everything from diaries and autobiographies to lots and lots of court records, uh, records of um, the poor law, uh, the first newspapers uh, in, in England, uh, um, and, you know, memoirs, all kinds of stuff, loads and loads of records, which allow us to have a much more vivid view of the lives of ordinary people. And what I was trying to do in The Blazing World was was to tell a political narrative. And it is very much a sort of, you know, kind of focused on what's happening in the, in uh, in politics and, and the relationship between Crown and Parliament and, and everything like that. But also to do it with this kind of background of uh, a, a kind of really sort of vivid technicolor picture of uh, of how ordinary life is is changing and how ordinary people were impacted and actually played a role in uh, in these great events that's really interesting and that leads into my next question which is why did you choose to write the blazing world as a narrative when that's not, you know, the default position for a lot of historians. So why did you choose to do a narrative? Uh, and, and and that's another great question. I so I had a I had a colleague um, who I won't name. He may if, if he ever listens to this, he may recognise this. Um, and he was uh, he was a great sort of you know proper kind of Marxist actually, um, and you know very much into kind of social structure and uh, and and the uh, you know the impact of the distribution of uh, of wealth to um, to the the you know the, uh, to to history and you know thought about things like the rise of the bourgeoisie and, and and all these kind of things and he once said to me the only thing that you can say about history for certain is that it moves forward in time um and i think that's a really important thing to remember as historians which is that it's very easy for us to sort of look back on the past and and see things kind of moving to a particular end point um, but one of the great things about narrative history is that you you do it the other way around. You sort of start at the beginning and you uh, and you you move forward. And and that then that I think as a as a writer and as a historian that sort of helps you see some of the paths which which don't get taken as much as the ones which do. And and I and, and you know one of the themes of the of the blazing world is is paths that don't get taken. You know in 1647 for example, 1648, um, there's a an opportunity for a much more radical social revolution uh, in England which doesn't get taken. Obviously in 1660 uh, the Republic um, collapses and the monarchy comes back. It's another path which doesn't get taken. Um, in 1685 there's this kind of vision of absolutism based on sort of toleration of both Catholics and Protestant dissenters under James II. But that collapses. It's another path which doesn't get taken. And one of the things about narrative history is it really does kind of emphasise emphasize that. Um, but I also think, I mean... Uh, you know, it is. It's not a textbook, and and that's one thing that I think it's it's really important to to, to emphasize. And when I was writing it, I one of the phrases that I had in my mind, I I should have had it sort of written on top of my laptop, which is this is not a textbook. Um, and although it does, you know, obviously I do make historiographical decisions in the way in there. Every historian has to. Um, it doesn't sort of sit there and say, well, you know, there's this historian who says this about the the reign of Charles the first, and then there's this historian who says the other um, so it is partly just a function of the kind of book it is which is very much one aimed at a general readership um, people who are new to the period um, and therefore people who who want a good story actually um, first and foremost and so just to linger on the question of historiography there 
where does it fit within that wider scholarship and and what are you trying to say to that wider scholarship i I mean i think i'm i I would self-identify as a sort of post-revisionist basically um in that uh you you know if you go back sort of uh 60 years um 80 years even further um you you have a kind of you know you have a view of the the political breakdown of the 17th century um in which there are long-term forces at play. Um, and then that was really kind of challenged in the 1960s and 1970s by the revisionists who who made very persuasive, people like Conrad Russell, people like, um, you know, John, John Morrill, um, made very persuasive, very kind of uh, sophisticated, very nuanced arguments that essentially um, the the civil wars and, and to, you know, to an extent sort of later political crises um, were... Uh, essentially caused by short-term contingency you know there's a there's a, the famous sort of conrad russell argument that there's there's no really there's not really any point looking for the cause of the civil war before 1637 it's all to do with that sort of billiard ball effect when things go wrong in scotland and then then, then in england and then in ireland and then you know it's and, and then you know uh, it, it, it sort of all collapses and then of course you've got the argument that um, you know, where there is a political crisis, it's the fault of a useless monarch. You know, Charles I is politically hopeless. That's the argument. Um, James II, he's got a perfectly good hand. There's no deep lying uh, structural issues. He's just, you know, he's just a very, very bad politician. Um, and I kind of, whilst giving quite a lot of respect to those historians, and I use their work quite a lot, um, I think my view is is that there is a there are a set of much deeper causes for the political um, uh, political uh, problems of the 17th century. Um, and of those, I think where I'm a little bit different to um, some of my other colleagues uh, is I, I do put a little bit more emphasis on um, on social change. And, and let's say there's perhaps two in particular, which which I emphasise in the book um and one is the rise of the the sort of middle sort of people these are the kind of yeoman farmers who are prospering um under the growth of population and the and inflation of the early uh, the early 17th century and they're doing very well um they've got a bit more wealth um and they partly invest that wealth in um, education uh, and in the law and what that does is it means that they are literate they can read pamphlets they can think about religion um they also uh, are um invested in government um and that is as much kind of local government sort of dealing with social problems like vagrancy um as much as anything else um but they're also invested in the law and they they learn how to be lawyers they are engaged in lawsuits over their estates and that brings them into contact with um you know i ideology about the law about the role of the royal prerogative um, about um, the common law and about parliament because parliament is you know sort of right at the pinnacle of the of the english legal system at this point um so there's all that which kind of brings in these sort of middle sorts of people into contact with um ideology and with uh with the state which i see i see is quite important uh, but at the same time you've also got this kind of massive growth of london and one of the most kind of you know, one of the key characters in the book, you know, if anyone asks me who's the key character in the book, it's London, the city of London, because London has grown massively, roughly doubles between this, between 1603 and 1640. And then it, it still sort of grows a bit more slowly, but it still grows into the later 17th century. Um, and that 
creates a world of profoundly literate, uh, profoundly politically engaged, profoundly religiously engaged, um, ordinary people who are right smack bang in the middle of where where politics happens. Uh, And some of the big set pieces in the book are moments. So, for example, um, you know, in uh, in May 1640 or in uh, December 1641 or, or at the 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 so-called Battle of Turnham Green or in the summer of 1647, uh, where Londoners, in the Glorious Revolution as well, of course, where Londoners are playing a massive political role as petitioners, uh, as protesters, um, as pamphleteers uh, and as people with kind of new political ideologies. So I I see those kind of deep lying social structural factors as being ones which which really kind of help destabilise politics. Another thread that people have sort of picked up on through the book is this idea of cultural conflict and um, uh, sort of, you know, culture wars. I I got sort of slightly um, justifiably sort of picked up on it a little bit by um, Archbishop Rowan Williams in his review in the the New Statesman. He sort of says, well, you know, he he seems to be a bit obsessed with his concept of culture war. And in in my defence, I kind of got it from Bernard Catt, one of the greatest historians of this of this period still active. Um, And it's this idea that there is the there are these kind of different different um different views of the world um uh, at play in the 17th century and you know most obviously when you have sort of puritanism versus royalism which which to me seem like very different kind of views of uh of the world and of the cosmos um and i think those become in some places they become incompatible um and where i sort of link that in together with the stuff that i'd already sort of you know talked about is that you know the 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 rise of these kind of middling sort people um they are the ones who are having these um that having these opinions about um about man's relationship with god and um you know gender relations in the parish and and and, and, and all those kind of things um i'm I always another kind of quotation that I always had at the back of my mind when I was writing was one from the great um uh, the great sort of um uh, early twentieth century historian uh, and activist richard tawney. Um, and he was sort of faced with this idea that the civil war was a, a bourgeois revolution, which is what you're, of course, what you're told about um, by, uh, you know, kind of proper Marxists, I suppose. And he said, yes, of course, it's a bourgeois revolution. Of course, the civil war is a bourgeois revolution. It's just that the bourgeois were on both sides. Um, so it's a very different view. It's not a rising bourgeoisie who are trying to trying to get into power. It's a rising uh, of a sort of political group who are of a sort a social group who are politically engaged. Now I don't use the term bourgeois because I use the term middling sort. I'm more into the sort of rural folk. But it's a quite I I find it quite a sort of convincing argument. Um, and just I, I you know I realise I've been talking for a while. I and the 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 reason I suppose that I was so into that kind of view is that my own historiographical tradition I suppose is to come from the sort of new social historians, you know, the sort of Keith Wrightsons, the Steve Hindles, the, you know, uh, um, uh, people like that, who have done such uh, great work in the last sort of 40 years, uh, thinking about um, how English society changed. And one of the things that they often focus on is this idea of the rise of the middling sort. And and so, you know, it's partly because I came from that historiographical tradition that that became something that I emphasise quite a lot. Very interesting. You highlight that London is is the most important character in the book because I I, I would agree it, the people of London always pop up throughout the narrative of the podcast so far. I actually have had emails from listeners confused because I'll say in one episode that 
London rallied behind Parliament, and then the next one, Parliament's having to beat off royalist protesters, and they're confused. Hang on, I thought London was on their side. Uh, and also in, uh, at this point as well, a, a sort of divided uh, urban area because you've got the you, you're starting to get a much more uh, significant um, distinction between the east east end and the west end, um, and the west end, which kind of you know is jurisdictionary jurisdictionally under. Westminster um, is a very different place to to London in lots of ways because it's a a city which is much more dependent on the royal court Um, and it's a place where you know sort of courtiers aristocrats lawyers um, all kind of live in these quite new quite uh, quite grand um, new uh, brick built houses uh, that become places like Covent Garden and St Martin in the Fields and all these kind of areas Um, so yeah I mean London it's in some um there's another great anecdote isn't there which is when um uh, william of william of orange um invades in late 1688 um having had all this kind of you know outpourings of support from london james ii has fled out to kent and he's busily kind of having his underpants searched in faversham and william of orange gets into london and then he's suddenly faced with this kind of um you know much less uh much less um support than he expects and when he brings james ii back from kent um james ii gets kind of you know garlanded in in, in the streets and william is absolutely shocked by this because he thinks london is a you know a whiggish city he thinks it's somewhere which is going to support him and it's similar in the civil war i mean you know london um is there is a there's a very significant element of royalism um perhaps even more so than that in london there is uh, there are a lot of people who simply want peace more than anything um and then of course by the uh by 1647 there is a sort of you know there's there's this kind of split in the parliamentarian side whereby a lot of people in london are basically kind of presbyterian and they are horrified and scared by the growth of of independency and by the growth of levelerism so that yeah it's a it's a vibrant city it's a divided city um and and i think you know, I, I, I think the, the perspective of the social historian, which can look at London and look at or, you know, look at places in England um, and say, you know, it's not just a sort of stereotypical thing. It's not, you know, it's not the case that all the gentry support one side. It's not the case that, you know, whoever. Um, there's nuance, there's debate. Um, and, it, I, I, and, you know, that, that then, of course, became quite a significant theme of the book, the idea of multiple voices, um, not trying to impose too much of a kind of, uh, uh, of a rigid sort of typology on the way people thought. Um, basically, the big story is that people looked at the same stuff and came to vastly different conclusions. And that in itself is a really interesting story. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hi everyone, this is Scott. If you want to learn about the world's oldest civilizations, find out how they were rediscovered, 
follow the story of Mark Antony and Cleopatra's descendants over ten generations, or take a deep dive into the Iron Age or the Hellenistic era, then check out the Ancient World Podcast. Available on all podcasting platforms, or go to ancientworldpodcast.com. That's the Ancient World Podcast. Let's talk sources, because obviously you're not a stranger to this period, so the sheer wealth and variety of primary sources wouldn't have taken you by surprise when you started researching for The Blazing World. But was there anything that did surprise you, or that anything that stuck out to you while you were doing your research that you weren't expecting to find, or something that really changed the path of the book? That's a really good question. Uh, I don't think. I, I mean, I think because it is so much a work of synthesis, um, I had a pretty good idea of where it was going to go to start off with. So it's not a. It's not a particularly sort of research, uh, um, you know, primary research focused book. As I say, it's a work of synthesis, although it does kind of, you know, obviously it tries to use primary sources um, where possible. Um, I think in terms of the the sort of surprise, um, I I think I was quite taken by the depth of um, discussion about faith early on in this period. Um, and I think, you know... It, in a sense it's a, for a historian it's probably a bit of a, a a bit of a kind of platitude but the the this is a very religious period um and people did kind of have quite sophisticated and, and nuanced views of of religion and that was the case sort of with with quite um with quite ordinary people as well and there's a there's an anecdote that that i used early in the book um and it's sort of um it's it comes out because the book starts with a really kind of bizarre, um, but very funny, uh, um, basically kind of mock wedding in Cartmel in Lancashire. And this was actually this was actually something that I found in the archives. And, and you know, most of the book is based on the brilliant work of, of other scholars. But this was actually something that that I found in the archives in the, in the papers of Star Chamber. Um, and it, it sort of led me on to a another quite famous anecdote much more famous anecdote from from Cartmel from the same place um, which is where in the 1640s they get this kind of earnest puritan minister um, and he is horrified by the the level of irreligion in his parish and he sort of he talks to an old an old bloke there and and he says you know have you have you heard of jesus christ um which is you know quite the question to be having to ask in, in the 1640s um and this guy says uh i think so i think i've heard of this man um i was at a play in kendall and there was a guy on a tree um and the blood ran down i think that was him and you know this puritan minister is absolutely horrified by the irreligion of this of this this aged parishioner who claims that he's a sort of good churchgoer um but i think my my view of that kind of thing and there's there's another quite famous one as well which is just before the um and i can't even remember whether i i don't think i did use this in the book but there's so much that i had to cut out there's another quite famous um episode where it's just before the battle of edge hill and the the royalists and the parliamentarians are both sort of tramping around the fields of warwickshire um and uh, the royalists come across this local gentleman in you know kyneton or wherever um and they 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 say which side are you on are you royalist or parliamentarian and he sort of looks at them with kind of big eyes and sort of said 
what have they had some kind of falling out <laughs> um, and again it's you know it's used by historians as, as this example of how you know ordinary people in the countryside just don't have any idea what's going on but I think there is another way of interpreting these, which is that they are just taking the piss. You know, there is a sort of uh, there's a wonderful kind of irony about these people. And, and I am sure that's the case with the cartmail guy, because I'm sure that he knows who Jesus Christ is. He just realises that there's this over earnest outsider who he wants to have a little bit of sport with. Um, and the same with the Warwick thing. And I think, you know, what that kind of sort of feeds into is um, there's definitely uh one thing that really sort of came out of this um uh of this the work on this period that i ended up doing was that just how sophisticated ordinary people were in the way that they thought about the law they thought about religion um you know i i i remember i remember at school my someone said because i learned about the civil war at school i had a great teacher um and someone said to him once he was like you know how did how did the how did the peasants understand all this stuff? And he just said, "Well, look, you know, these people could understand Shakespeare. Um, you know, they were they were not stupid." Um, and uh, I mean, it's it's a funny way of putting it, of course, but because you know, does anyone understand Shakespeare? But it, it, there's there's a real kind of kernel of truth there. Um, and I think one of the things that I was really, really, really kind of adamant to do in that book is not to kind of be not to condescend to the to people in uh in the 17th century and to really kind of try and understand them as rational human beings um you know people who are faced with these really complicated issues um and come to different conclusions about them not because they're some of them are stupid or anything like that but because these are complicated issues and because there are multiple valid ways of thinking about them absolutely and they're complicated issues with the highest possible stakes. I mean, if your questions are about the fate of your immortal soul. You want to get it right. Absolutely. And but also, I mean, the, the other the other really kind of um, sort of quite stirring thing that I actually found about the period was that the, um, you know, I mean, questions about your immortal soul are absolutely a really good example, actually, because, you know, in some ways in a time of uncertainty and of course, the 17th century, there's a huge amount of uncertainty. There's political uncertainty. There's social crisis. There's inflation. There's the little ice age. There's all this kind of stuff going on. There's massive war on the continent. So people are understandably a bit uncertain about the world um there is a sort of arguably a kind of natural tendency in those kind of circumstances to 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 go back to what you know and to kind of you know kind of retreat into a sort of you know uh conservative worldview uh and, you know the comfort that that might provide you but actually lots of people didn't in this period they actually went the opposite way they they sort of thought well you know how do we reform society how do we how do we change people's relationship with god um and you know i i, I some of the reviews have pointed out i i i do have a certain amount of kind of you know what, what you try and be an objective historical um uh you know an objective historian but i i there's there's a lot of sympathy in there with the you know with the the the, the visionaries and the free thinkers and you know people like the quakers who come up with this completely new way of of uh of of experiencing faith um you know the levelers who are able to think about what what does it really mean to have the safety of the people at the center of our political ideology and how do we make sure that that the people are actually part of the political um political uh um you know the, the political setup and how are they protected um and you know these people they they managed in in what was fundamentally a a very sort of 
um, backward-looking culture. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean it in, in an objective way, that people people looked to the past for inspiration and for um, for, for for direction um but and and yet still um some of these people managed to think of uh, uh, up these kind of really kind of remarkable um proposals for for social and, and political and religious change i mean you have people you know you have people advocating um you know that a national health service for example you have people advocating legal aid um there are some people uh who um argue that there shouldn't be the death penalty for example which of course you know in the uk that we've we've got there but they haven't everywhere in the world um and i just think some of the thought that comes out of often quite ordinary people in this in this period men and women as well you know one of the one of the actually one of the tragedies of this period is that is that the um uh, the the political upheavals of the 17th century of the middle of the 17th century probably kind of held back any kind of discussion of um, of gender relations really, um, and probably helped to sort of reinforce the kind of patriarchy that was um, that was uh, uh, that, that you have at the start of the period, and and you know was reinforced by the end. But in the middle of the period, there are you know people willing to sort of talk about women's rights and um, you know uh, um, uh, and the women's liberation and things like that, and and just you know in that society, it just is remarkable that people were able to do that. Um, so I find that um, you know quite inspiring, actually. Um, well, let's focus in on on one of the things you touched on there—the the idea of people thinking of new ways to look at the world and new ways to govern and all of this stuff. Um, you touched on the levelers, uh, so I want to jump ahead of where the narrative is at the moment. So this is a spoiler, but John Lambert famously drafts the instrument of government. Now I wonder if you could explain to the audience what the instrument of government was and how was it received. Uh, well, so it, the instrument of government is the uh, the first. Um, uh, the first attempt at a written constitution um, for not just actually not just England but for the uh, for for England Scotland and Ireland um, and it's an attempt to um, put down basic kind of f- uh, fundamental principles um, of, of the constitution and and it's a sort of you know it's an attempt to balance constitution it's uh, you'd have a you have a Lord Protector which initially would be Oliver Cromwell um, and his um, rule was tempered by parliament and of course is tempered by the existence of this written constitution and amongst the, the sort of constitutional um, protections were things like um, you know, re- religious toleration for those who profess a belief in uh, in um, Jesus Christ basically um, as long as they're not sort of openly Catholic or openly advocating for the rule of bishops. Um, so it's a very imperfect kind of toleration but but for you know for the, in the context of the time it is um, relatively wide um, it also does things like franchise reform as well um, it changes the basis of, of who can vote it's still only men um, but uh, uh, but it can be men who um, don't own land in this point at this point um, although they have to have a certain amount of um, uh, real pro- uh, a certain amount of um, uh, you know kind of um, uh, non-real po- property um, and uh, uh, and it also reforms sort of constituency boundaries so places like Leeds and Manchester get MPs for the first time um, but I think what's what's really interesting for me about the instrument of government is that it is a sort of uh, it, it, it's a um, it's a sort of modernizing step now it may be a very imperfect one but it's the very fact that it, it, it basically looks at the constitution as it is. And instead of doing the normal thing for that period, which is to say, right, what's the precedent? What's the ancient constitution? What does what's thing what have things been like from time immemorial? It actually says, 
no, we're going to think about this rationally. We're going to use reason and we're going to say, right, okay, um, this town should have an MP, even though it's never had one before because it's a big town. Um, and, 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 and by doing that, it, it was sort of, um, it was actually a really quite significant break from uh, the constitutional norms. It was inspired by, um, by levelers because they argued for, um, uh, written constitutions and, and fundamental constitutional um, protections, um, although it ended up being a sort of relatively conservative uh, document in many, many ways. It, it didn't, you know, it, it wasn't a sort of social revolutionary document. Uh, the trouble was, um, it, it came from it, John Lambert uh, was a soldier um, and a fairly kind of, you know, he was from a sort of uh, middling sort of Yorkshire gentry background. He's from Malham, um, and uh, and um, he uh, he'd risen through the ranks. He'd become the sort of one of the leading soldiers under um, Fairfax and Cromwell, um, and he was clearly probably I mean he was probably more intelligent than than either of them actually, and more thoughtful. Certainly more intelligent than Fairfax, who who's a bit sort of you know. Um, uh, but um, he uh, he has this kind of fatal weakness um, in the eyes of the people in positions of of you know responsibility in the middle of the 1650s which is that he's just plain old soldier john um and uh, and that means that any constitution that he gives that he provides is fundamentally coming from from the soldiers and one of the things that in the 17th century people were very um kind of uh, invested in is where does power come from um you know there are, in some ways the civil war is a debate about where power comes from does it come from god or does it come from the people the parliamentarians argue that basically it comes from the people it's not the same thing as arguing for democracy they're, they're talking about where power comes from um the trouble is with lambert uh, is that as much as he you know, as much as he kind of dresses it up as a sort of, you know, uh, a constitution which is rational and comes from the people, uh, fundamentally it comes from the army. It's been presented to Cromwell by a general. Um, the hope is initially um, that it will uh, it will then be ratified by Parliament. Parliament will say, yes, great idea, brilliant constitution, John. We'll take that on and um, we will uh, we'll give that our seal of approval, therefore giving um, the seal of approval of the representatives of the people. Unfortunately for, for, for Lambert and for Cromwell, they don't do that. They instead sort of start to say, well, hang on a second. We want to create our own constitution. We want to do it our way. We don't want this plain old Yorkshire soldier coming and telling us how many, you know, how many, uh, how many constituencies there should be or who should be tolerated. Um, so it has a very, very rough ride and it, it basically sort of falls apart in uh in late 1656 1657 just after cromwell has attempted to rule through major generals so kind of military local government if you like one of the most notorious um uh, elements of the of the republic's history was uh, you know attempt to impose some form of military rule on 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 local communities didn't work very well um and after that there is also um there's also a kind of uh, a, a big sort of celebrity trial, if you like, where a Quaker called James Naylor had walked into Bristol on the back of a donkey uh, whilst his followers kind of threw leaves in front of him. So imitating uh, um, Christ's entry into Jerusalem. Uh, and what 
what uh, Naylor was doing is he was sort of he was acting out this kind of fundamental Quaker belief that that the inner light Christ is in all of us. Um, but it looked very similar to blasphemy to a lot of people, not least because um, Naylor himself used to wear sort of long hair um, and kind of flowing robes, which is how people thought Jesus dressed at the time. Um, so anyway, the, the the problem with that was that it was um, it was very unclear under the instrument of government whether or not they could do anything about Naylor. Because remember that clause which says. Um, yeah, toleration for anyone who professes to believe in Jesus Christ, as long as they're not a Catholic or an Episcopalian. Well, Naylor isn't a Catholic or an Episcopalian, and he definitely believes in Jesus Christ. He just thinks that he just has a particular view. Um, so that um, that um, kind of celebrity trial, which happens in Parliament, um, and the uh, the issue over the um, uh, over the major generals, then basically kind of does for the instrument of government. And what happens is one of the most kind of celebrated, notorious, depending on your view, uh, moments in the Republic's history, which is that a group of MPs offer Oliver Cromwell the crown. And it's a very interesting offer. It's a really interesting offer um, because what what they're not doing is they're not saying, let's go back to you know monarchy. We'll just have the House of Cromwell versus the House of Stuart. It's absolutely not that. They are arguing for a very different kind of monarchy. It's a, it's a crown which has been given by Parliament. Um, therefore, it is vested in the sovereignty of the people, because that's what Parliament represents. Um, ironically, then, Cromwell turns it down because he thinks that God has cast down the idea of monarchy. Um, so <coughs> so he sort of, you know, he, he, he goes against it. Um, but he does accept this kind of new constitution, the additional petition and advice, which has come from Parliament. Um, and the way to think of this is that it's basically a kind of civilian coup against Lambert, who then goes off in a sulk. Um, uh, because he's, you know, because he's lost power. Um, but th- those kind of, you know, I, I think one of the things I was trying to do in the book um, is to uh, give the constitutional and political struggles of the Republic their due, because I feel that sometimes in treatments of that period of history, there is a sort of focus on, you know, the sort of dowdiness of Cromwell, the alleged dowdiness of the Puritans and, you know, all all the theatres being closed. Whereas actually there are there are these really kind of sophisticated um, and for me, fascinating uh, debates about power, about the Constitution, um, which are not ended by the regicide. If anything, they become bigger. You know, you suddenly got rid of this ancient constitution. What do you do? Um, and there's various different attempts to kind of answer that question. But that fundamental question of where does power come from? Does it come from the people? And in what way, if it does come from the people, in what way can they best be represented? Uh, becomes a kind of running theme throughout the 1650s. During the Republic, almost ironically, it's a, it's a point you make in, in The Blazing World. In the 1640s, the radicals were very political. But then from the 1650s, that kind of radical energy disperses into religious thought instead. Yeah. I wonder if you could speak a bit more about that. Yeah, and I think um, I there is a tendency um, among uh, people looking at the 1640s and 1650s to think in terms of the defeat of radicalism. And, you know, obviously, Gerald Wynne Stanley's kind of, you know, uh, sort of proto-communist communes on the Chilterns and in, the, in um, you know, St. George's Hill, Surrey, they obviously don't last. Um, the levellers are politically defeated. Um, but 
I think if we think about this from the point of view of people at the time where they would be as just as worried about their immortal soul and uh, as they are about their right to vote, um, I, I, I think I, I think we can overblow, we can overdo the idea of defeat because thing, movements like the Quakers, movement, movements like the Baptists, um, they survive. And, um, you know, obviously um, they enter into a period of persecution in the 1660s and 1670s, but they survive that as well. And they, so they come Come out of the revolution strong enough to um, become this kind of dissenting radical tradition. Um, it's just that it's not secular; it's religious. Um, and I, I didn't in the book, but I do sometimes describe the the um, the Quakers as the sort of the 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 greatest ever English peasant radical movement um, because it was unlike you know unlike a lot of peasant radical movements um, in the early modern period, it was successful. They they lasted. They're still there today. There's you know loads of Quakers around. Um, uh, I'm not sure how proud they'd be of Richard Nixon, but you know they 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 have survived as a movement, um, and they are um, you, you know they are fundamentally in this period they are fundamentally um, bottom up. They are ordinary. They, you know they get a lot of their strength from ordinary um, farmers, um, and and not just in London as well. The other thing that I found really you know sort of uh, you know really kind of great about the, the the Quakers um is that they they took hold their stronghold was in the north of England it was in Westmoreland it was in North Lancashire it was in um it was in the Pennines um and so this idea that there's a sort of you know there are radicals in in uh in mid 17th century England but they're all you know they're all in London and and they don't fundamentally have much purchase around the country um I think the Quakers really problematize that because they they take hold in in you know little villages in the Pennines which you wouldn't expect to be right at the forefront of sort of you know radical movements um so so one thing I was really keen to kind of emphasize is that um the uh although that sort of you know level of radicalism obviously kind of didn't uh didn't take hold although more so I suppose than people people often think I always think of John Wildman the great leveler who ends up being the the, running the post office for William of Orange, so I mean he survived fine. Um, but the the really kind of long lasting radical movements in the from from the middle of the seventeenth century were the the religious ones. Um, you know the Baptists, the Quakers, even people like the Muggletonians who uh, don't exist so much anymore. But um, you know they they they, uh, they it was a lasting legacy, and it sort of you know it, it was passed on through generations into into the eighteenth century and, and beyond. Just as a Final question, just to finish off. In in the Blazing World, you include a lot of fun asides and, and anecdotes and, and little things you found in the, in the records. Were there any that you wish you'd been allowed to keep in? No, not at all. Not at all. My uh, my editorial team were, were, were fantastic. There was... Um, so when I first um, wrote the book, uh, uh, the first draft was was considerably long. I mean, you may find this hard to believe, but it was considerably longer than the one which is which has um, ended up on the bookshelves. Um, and 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 most of it was pretty similar, actually. Um, but um, the uh, I, I well, I, I mean, I had another. I had a chapter on the um, uh, on sort of global developments as well, but that didn't really fit the. Um, uh, fit the uh, the book very well um but i also um i spent a lot more time looking at the kind of social background to start off with um and i had uh, a really kind of fun chapter about attitudes to uh, to sex and marriage um in the early 17th century and the sort of political 
the political relevance of this was that in the early 17th century, it's a sort of period of pressure on society. And that manifests itself in, um, you know, kind of worries about, um, you know, worries about sexuality, worries about gender relations, um, worries about marriage. Um, and I started it with this incredible anecdote of a, a kind of a, a very sort of complicated um uh, you know, uh, series of affairs in Spitalfields in uh, London, which I'd found in in Star Chamber. Um, but yeah, I never. I that it, it basically didn't. It, having all those chapters in to start off with meant that the flow at the beginning, where it's so important of a book that the, the at the start, it's got to keep moving. And you know, this ended up being a sort of eighty thousand word discussion of you know the problems in sixteen hundred and five or whatever. Um, so um, so that had to come out, and I, I I am a bit sad about that. But the um, yeah, it, it, it's one of these things where as a writer, and you you know you just finished your PhD, so you'll know exactly what I mean. Um, as a writer, you you can't include everything, and and there is a real, particularly writing this kind of book, there's a real imperative to have a cohesive narrative, um, but also one which doesn't sort of sit still for too long. Um, and so some of that stuff, unfortunately, had to go, but uh, maybe for a future publication. <laughs> Before we finish off, if there are people in the audience who really want to give The Blazing World a read, which I highly recommend, where can they find it? All good bookshops, um, all, uh, many bad bookshops as well. Um, the uh, there are um, if you can find yourself near a, a toppings, um, then they have plenty of signed copies, um, and uh, the paperback is due out in twenty twenty four. Early on, I think I've just seen the cover and it looks great. They've done a fantastic job. It's currently out in hardback and ebook. Yes. Yeah, and uh, um, uh, there's also you can also get a um, audiobook version, which is uh, narrated by the wonderful Oliver Hemsborough, and uh, yeah, that's another another option. It's about eighteen hours long, so you need to you need to have a bit of time. But uh, but yeah, very good. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, Dr. Healy, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.